0: sorry to put damper on your imaginary dream job, disaster strikes or more to the point you strike because you get sacked. Okay? You do something, it's not like a, oh I wonder if I'll get a written warning, it's like a, that's it, done. Gross, grossest gross misconduct, marching orders, plant from the desk, <laughs> off you go. Okay. It's terrible. You wake up the next morning, the alarm goes off, there's no sense of urgency at all. And you think, I've blown it. I had this great opportunity, I'm but I've messed it up. What, a, what an idiot. What have I done? But then a couple of days later, you get a call and you pick up the phone and it's your old job, or your boss. And at first you don't want to talk to him at all because uh, what you did to get sacked was mostly against him. Um, but he says, look, I know you don't deserve this at all, but I found a way to make it right what you did and I want to offer you your job back, okay? Happy ending to my imaginary thought experiment. Everyone understand the thing. Let's start over here this time. Yes, just nod or, yeah, okay, about 40%, that's okay. I I, I aim for those sort of percentages, so it's good. Um, In a sense, that thought experiment there would be a way to understand the, the whole Christian story. Uh, It's not a very normal way to understand the Christian story, but it certainly would be one uh, that would map onto what we see in God's Word, and one which I would like to explore with us uh, today. And at the moment, we're looking, we've got this series called Belonging in God's Story, and the basic idea is that. It will do us good to kind of break out of our small little stories to get wrapped up in a better story, a bigger story, a greater story, God's story. And to gain perspective from that story is really good, but also that we can slot ourselves into that story and live our lives in the light of that story. And last week, it's always getting very confusing nowadays for someone simple like me, but Jonathan last week... Yes, you haven't had Rich yet, have you, for this? No, it's all jumbled everywhere. It's really, really fun, but we work through that. That's okay. So Jonathan's kicked this off looking at the church. Yes, the office team is in full alignment. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, And so Jonathan started this last week. And just to be clear, I'm not telling a different story from the story I'm sure Jonathan told or the one that Rich will tell next time. But I want to come at it from a slightly different angle and focus on what we do once we're in this story, essentially. And the headline I'd like to put over it all is this. Is that, I'm sure we know this, I'm about to say, but as Christians, we know that we are not loved because of what we do. Again, I'm going. I know. I can sense the cold storm approach. I'm going for head nods. Nothing more. We're not loved because of what we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Vigorous. In fact, Dave looks like he's at a Slayer gig over there. That was really good. I, I like that. That's excellent. We are not loved because of what we do. But that does not mean that because we're loved, we have nothing to do. I just say that again. We are not loved because of what we do as Christians. But that doesn't mean because we're loved, we have nothing to do. Because because we're loved, actually, we're given loads to do. Wonderful, fulfilling, dignified, exciting things to do with our Father. As Christians, we have a job to do. We are people on a, any guesses on the word? Mission. Yes. Now, I've tried to mask this language with a different analogy, but this is the mission talk we've got there. you got it. So before I continue, I have a, 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 a thing to put up front just to help us to help this land with us as I think it could, because my experience would show, and it might just be my experience, it might be a general thing, who knows, but I'll throw it in anyway. When the mission talk comes up, or we start to talk about mission, often the reaction can be, oh, this is that thing that's like a department of the church, it's a bit of the church, Like there's lots of departments, and the mission bit's over here, and I might be involved in that, but I might not be involved in that. And when it comes to mission, we often think of certain things to do. You might be thinking, ah, this could be about handing out tracts. This could be about inviting people to stuff or generally just telling people things. And those things, yeah, I can see where those ideas come from. But right at the outset, I want to be clear, I'm not really talking about mission in that way. Um, I want to convince you today that to be a member of Church Central West is to be on a mission. Essentially, the two things are the same thing. But I don't want to stop there. I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to convince you today that to be a Christian is to be on a mission. It's not for some Christians. It's for all of us in the definition of who we are. But to stop there would be doing you guys, the caliber I see before me, would be doing you a disservice. I couldn't do that. Because I want to argue today that to be a human being, flourishing as God intended, is to be on a mission and on a mission with our Creator. And uh, overall, I guess within it all, and some of you might already be thinking this is a hard deal, I want to convince you that being on this mission is not just good news to those we go to, it's good news for us too. That's the plan, got it? Dave, come You're helping me. Yes, he's good. Right, good. And to do it, I want to take a sweep of the whole of history. We've only got a while. Owen's not here, so I can go on for as long as I want, basically. But yeah, let's do the whole of history while we're at it. Um, and so let's start over here, and we're going to work our way through. That's what these chairs will be. And so if we're going to do the whole of history in a biblical way, we always start with three words, don't we? What, what would the three words be we always start with? In the beginning. Well, let's see. What do we have behind window one? And will my... Elaborate tape idea work. Oh, yes, very good. At the north, they had slightly thinner chairs, which meant pegs worked for this. I was prepared, though. I had all sorts of methods, so nothing, nothing can stop me. In the beginning, let's start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as Christians, I'm sure if you're a Christian here, you'll be aware. We believe that God made everything from what? Nothing. He made everything from nothing. But it's funny. Because when you go to Genesis 1.1, we don't start with nothing, we start with something. It goes on, it says that God goes and he looks at the earth and the earth is a dark and watery chaos. And it's defined by two words. It's defined that it's empty and it's formless. And so God, immediately in the Bible, is presented as a God with a job to do, with a mission to, to bring about. And that is to bring order and life to the chaos. And uh, you don't have to read long, uh, long on from that point to find out that's what he does. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. What's he doing? He's bringing life. He's bringing order to the chaos. And then on day six, he makes human beings. In many ways, the pinnacle of his creation says in his image. And immediately again, we are presented as a species that is not just there to be, I'm going to catch up with little David later and I'll go, oh, look at him. Isn't he sweet? He just, he just bees, doesn't he? In, the, in that sort of way. But we're not just there for God to go, oh, aren't they sweet? Pat them on the head. We're immediately presented as a species that are here to do something. This is the next verse after the creation of humans. Uh, says this, it says, God says to humans, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. First thing to notice is, God is not giving us some duff little job in the corner. It's not like God's doing this big thing, and he's like, I could really do with someone to clean out the cupboard, and I can't be bothered, and so I'm going to get you lot, go and clean the cupboard, please. Like, that's not his job. Any cupboard cleaner, here, I'm not degrading your job okay (laughs) just saying that's not the kind of job we're talking about here God is giving us the same job he has amazing thing so God came to a world that was empty and he filled it what does he say to us in this verse he says fill the earth God came to a world that was formless and he brought order to it so what does he say to us he says fill the earth and Govern it, reign over it, subdue it. It's bringing order to a formless earth. What God's saying is, I've got a mission, human beings, and I've chosen you uniquely in my whole creation to join me in completing this mission. I think, oh. Sounds a very grand. Sounds like kind of boardroom role, an oversight consultancy role. It's just big picture stuff. Amazingly, the next chapter shows that while well, it might have a big scope to it, it starts on the ground practically. So Genesis 2.15 tells us how this works out for Adam. It says, The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Big picture, fill the earth and govern it. What's Adam's actual job? What is it? He's a gardener. He's a job. Who here has ever been employed as a gardener? Ah, Mark, a few of us. Very good, okay. It's a job. It's a very good job, I I would imagine. (laughs) Not this time of year. I imagine in about June it might be a very good job. But um, it's a job we still have. Adam's given a practical uh, job. Now, I think it's vital we see where this is in our story here because this is very important. It's different from everything else in our story in that this happens when everything is as it should be, okay? Really important we see this. This is before sin entered the world. At this point, end of day six, God looks down from heaven uh, and he goes, well, he's been going thumbs up all along. It was good. And he saw it was good. And he saw it was good. Day six, he saw it was very good. Double thumbs up. I like it. And Adam's there, I imagine, trimming a hedge or planting some seeds. And he looks up and goes, double thumbs up to you too. It is very good. Very good from God's perspective, very good from human beings' perspective. That's where we are here. To work with God on the jobs God is doing is in our very DNA. This is not a result of the fall. It's who we are. It's who we were made to be. And it's a practical role that we can all play our part in. Before we move on, we've only got, uh, those who joined us, there's a timeline going along here. Just so you know, we've only made it to one, so you're doing fine. Okay, we're about to move to two, but I want to push this one a little bit further. Because I would imagine that the kind of paradise that I've just laid out to you is very, very different from the kind of paradise that our culture would push to us. Our culture wouldn't go big on the afterlife sort of paradise, but if, and again, I'll ask this one to the floor, if if you talk to someone about what is paradise, what would be some of the features they might talk about? What do you reckon? Beach, I think beach was my number one as well, beach, especially this time of year. Um, any others? Relax. Relax, yeah. Happy, yeah, very happy. I thought cocktails, lions, uh, all-night parties for some people, Um, all sorts of hedonistic pleasures might feature. Uh, But yeah, it could be on a beach, could be in very natural, area of natural beauty. Tell you three features that would never feature uh, in a secular Western view of paradise. Alarm clock going off at six, not there. Scraping ice off the windows of your car, <laughs> uh, it's about 6.30, that's not there, and starting another day full of task lists trying to meet targets. That's not there in anybody's view of paradise in our culture. Now li- listen, I, I'm not suggesting that when Jesus returns those three exact features are going to be there. But It's funny because at the north I said that and everyone laughed. They, go, oh, Of course they wouldn't be there. Then I don't know, I'm not suggesting they definitely will, but I'll be honest, I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if something similar to those sort of things were there when Jesus returns. So you marinate on that. Alarm clock's going off, going to work. Do we go to work when Jesus comes back? Well, I'm not saying I know the answer. I'm just saying I wouldn't be surprised. And my reason is this. The Christian vision of the good life is not one of eternal leisure and relaxation. It is one of meaningful, dignified work. Let's go back here before we move on to see how this pans out. Because if you know the story, you'll know that we don't exactly take up our job with glee and delight, do we? We we mess it up badly. This is the moment we get fired, essentially. Um, And uh, we rebel against God. We decide to go our own way. We don't want to join with God in his mission. We want to carve out our own path, and it has disastrous consequences. And the rest of this story is essentially how God then fixes our rebellion and as I've said in a sense this story is the story of how we got our dream job back when we got ourselves spectacularly fired and so the next key thing in the story God some years later comes to a nomadic tribesman who would have been from a part of the world where they kind of worship the moon and this guy don't know whether he was worshiping the moon at the time I mean who knows but a voice booms down to him from heaven anyone know who this might be Abraham, <laughs> this is where the sticky tape may not work. Yeah, let's see, I think we'll be all right. Saved, Abraham, pat yourself on the back if you got that. That was a great, great effort. Uh, Abraham uh, is there and this is what God says to him, voice booming down. I don't know how it happened, uh, but this is what he says in Genesis 12:1. Leave your native country, God says, your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. I mean... I reckon this guy's going to be pretty happy with that. It's pretty good, isn't it? As far as booming voices go, that could, be, could have been a lot worse. <laughs> this is promise after promise of blessing on Abraham. It's like, wow. And it is a promise, it's an incredible promise from God. But notice the promise, or in fact, the promises, do come with a job here, or a number of jobs for Abraham and his descendants. I think we could sum up at two that are here. First is, he says, I will make you into a great nation. There will need to be some work done to do that. That's not something that you wake up one day, oh, I'm a great nation. How did that happen? No, there's, there's, there's work to do there. I'll, I'll make you a great nation. Secondly, it says all the families on earth will be blessed through you to become a great nation and to bless all the families on the earth and they're promised their success promised but there is work to do they'll have to him and his descendants will have to act towards those uh, goals now before we move on in the story I just want to put out a couple of similarities here to Genesis 1 to see what we've already seen again this is a calling to bless back over here the calling was to bring life and order in the chaos and yeah of course order can be done in such a way that it doesn't bless Fascism is a particularly effective way of bringing order without blessing people. And some workplaces, you might think, have a similar regime where where there's over-order. But that's not what it means by life and order in the chaos. This is saying, no, 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 this is to bless, it's to do good. And for Abraham, it's to be a blessing. That's the whole thing that he's called to do. Secondly, just like over here, the scope is massive. The beginning, in the beginning, it was fill the earth and subdue it. Now God's talking to Abraham and he says all the families of earth will be blessed by you. There's one other thing that we see here that is all the way through the rest of this stuff but is really pronounced in this story. We find out that as we team up with God to do the job, we cannot do the job on our own. And we see that very clearly in the story of Abraham. Because Abraham, his promise and the job that he had involved him, But he could never do this on his own in his lifetime. This was for his descendants, and um, as you may know, there was a huge problem here because Abraham and his wife Sarah, they couldn't have kids. They'd been trying to have kids for years, uh, and nothing. And they were old at this point. In fact, they were really old at this point. But the mission involved kids. So what did they have to do? Well, what Abraham did, and If you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll know this is in one sense the easiest thing, but in another sense the hardest thing is he believed God. He trusted God that he could do it. And as he trusted him, God responded to that by coming to Abraham. And when Abraham was about 100, and as Paul puts it in Romans 4, that Sarah's womb was dead, he caused her to miraculously conceive, and their son Isaac was born. This is vital that we understand this here. Very important part in the story. At this point, what God's saying is, despite your sin here, I still want to get you involved in this job I've got you to do. But in the story itself, it shows us that while we've got a very important role to play, we can't get ahead of ourselves and think, let's go then, we'll do it all ourselves. No, to fulfill this job needs God's miraculous intervention. It's the same all the way through uh, the story. God will have to do the heavy lifting. I suppose we could put it like that. Um, He will need to take the decisive action. And as we move on, uh, story Moses, uh, a sea needs to be split. Moses couldn't have done that. As we move on, David, a a young man defeating a giant. What's the message? You need God to come in here. And this is something I want to underline here, but we'll see keeping going as the story goes on. But let's continue with the story, shall we? As we're only on number two. Now, Abraham, as God has said, and as I mentioned, he had a child, Isaac, and Isaac had uh, children, and they have children, and in a few hundred years, uh, they are a large extended family. But again, we have a problem. This large extended family is far from a great nation. They are living as slaves in Egypt. And so we need to cue in the next guy. Any guesses? Ooh, I think I heard it. I mentioned him a minute ago. But you can still pat yourself on the back if you've got it. Our survey says, Moses! I spent ages at the North trying to mull whether the pyramids had been invented here or were being invented. I don't know. Google Images told me Egypt, that's the picture. So that's what I'm trying to communicate with that. Um, so Moses, it's um his, we could talk lots about Moses, obviously. Uh, the beginning of Moses' life was full of peril and danger and excitement. Um, but I'm not going to worry about that. I want to pick the story up towards the end. He's probably an old guy. Well, he is an old guy at this point, And he's a shepherd uh, in a place called Horeb. And he's uh, tending the sheep. And he sees out the corner of his eye, I like to imagine it, uh, uh, a fire. And he looks over and it's a bush. A bush is on fire. So he wanders over and his interest is piqued even more by the fact this bush, it's on fire but it's not burning in that it's not being eaten up. There's fire but it's not eating up the bush. Okay. Moses, while he stands there stroking his long gray beard wondering what does this mean? Just like God spoke to Abraham, he speaks to Moses out of the burning but not burning uh, bush and they have a conversation. And you can find their conversation in Exodus 3, but I will summarize the gist of the conversation. conversation essentially goes like this. Hello, Moses. I'm God. I've got a job for you. That seems to be Exodus 3 in a nutshell. I'll, I will quote, rather than paraphrase, Exodus 3.10. This is the job. God says, Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. If you know the story? you'll know that with a few curves in the path along the way, that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what Moses does, and he completes his mission. Before we move on, there's something I want to notice new in this part of the story. Now, again, like I said, we could notice the importance of miracles all over the story of Moses. We've got a part to play, but God must do the heavy lifting. Underline, that's important. But we see something else here that's really, really important in this whole topic in this way of looking at God's story and seeing it as a mission, there's a job to do, you might think, okay, then that's fair enough. But basically, that's making God essentially our boss. And I've had bosses, and some good, some bad, and this might be what you're thinking. Um, But the best you can hope for relationship-wise with a boss is a good working relationship. There is not intimacy with a boss. And that seems to go against some of the other stuff the Bible teaches about God as our Father, about friendship, about intimacy, about all those things. However, what we see in the story of Moses is fascinating, because you thought he's a man on a mission, he's a man on a job, so you think, well, God must be very distant to this guy. Not at all. Moses is presented probably as the character in the Old Testament who God was closest to. So what it says in Exodus thirty-three eleven. it says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. The whole story of Moses is a story of him working out his friendship with God as they worked together to free God's people, get them into the Promised Land. Working with God didn't take away from his friendship, it was the context in which their friendship was worked out. For me, I'll be honest, I I viewed friendship for many years of my life, as uh, proper friendship anyway, is the thing you can do where you don't have to do anything with people. So sitting on the sofa watching telly, banter, that's what it is, that's friendship. It's people who like similar things to you are really easy to get on with. That's friendship. And I was shocked then that when I left my last job as a teacher, that I discovered a new type of friendship, and there's an intimacy that's very different to that with friends. Because the last day I was a teacher, I was a mess. I, I was weeping for the enti- <laughs> entire day. It was incredibly embarrassing. I'll I tell you this now, that's not my, that's not my thing. I don't, like <laughs> I don't like to do that. But I just spent the whole day in tears, just sniffling tissues everywhere. And what I realized was, what's going on here? What's the problem? And I realized, as I said goodbye to the team I was part of, that we had built these relationships, this strength of relationship together that was far more than sitting on the sofa uh, banter. It was much more than that. We'd been through tough times together. We'd had each other's back. We'd supported each other. We'd met targets together. We'd celebrated together. And there is a, an element of relationship and friendship that is strengthened in that relationship that we often don't think of, I don't think. I've talked to many Christians before who've said, this whole relationship with God thing, I find this hard to, to feel. I don't feel that close to God. It might well be the case for people here, I've, I've talked to many, in an, when they're being honest, these people who would have been Christians for a very long time would have said, I'll be honest with you, I've never really known what that means. I, I've said it, but relationship, I don't understand. It doesn't feel like a relationship. We often, I'd often say in that case, well, praying's really helpful, you know, worship's really helpful, Reading God's word, hearing his voice, really helpful. Yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Okay, all really helpful. But there's another element as well. If you're feeling distant from God, I'd want to ask you, are you on a mission with him? Are you working side by side, shoulder to shoulder with him? We find in the story of Moses, it doesn't take away from the relationship. It's the context in which the relationship is worked out. So with that noted, then let's move onward in the story. In fact, let's zoom forward past the kahan, past the guitar, the mic stand, the second fallback, 700 whole years to the to a moment in Israel's history. Years later, and it's not a proud moment, as many after Moses aren't, to be honest, in the Old Testament. And uh, Israel. Have essentially been becoming more and more unfaithful for generations, and now the consequences are pretty clear. The northern kingdom of Israel ha- is in the process at this point of being annexed, taken away by the Assyrian Empire. They will never return, they're gone for good. Okay. The more faithful part, Judah, southern kingdoms, I say more faithful, still not doing great to be honest, but <laughs> what's that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, less unfaithful, relatively speaking. Um, Those guys are, it's really at this point just a matter of time before they go the same way. And that does happen soon after uh, this sort of stuff as well. Um, Oh, am I here? Yes, there we go. Um, So that's what we've got going on here. And and at this point, things are bad. Like they're bad all around. And if I was a devout Jew at this time praying to, to Yahweh, I think on a good day, if I was being optimistic, I would set my prayer level at survival. To be, God, please don't wipe us out completely. Please give us a small corner of this planet that we can just continue our traditions and continue worshipping you. And that would have been reasonably, I think, hopeful uh, as a prayer, uh, probably at that time. Um, but God has a slightly different, uh, different story. I'm going to just call this one Israel, actually. Although I could use another... Word with the same two letters at the beginning because God speaks. The passage I want to just mention to you is a passage where God speaks to a prophet called Isaiah, 700 years after Moses. And this is what he says to him. This time of despair, a time when you'd have been thinking small, God says, This Isaiah 49, verse 6 It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I've kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth wow the language there it's funny because it strikes me as that language there you will be a light for the gentiles god comes to the earth and it's dark and the darkness is the main ingredient of the chaos and we know that because what's the very first thing god does let there be here he's saying you will be a light for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews, not just for a one group of people in a small place, for everybody. And the scope's the same, isn't it? It's, over there is fill the earth and subdue it. Here we have the ends of the earth. What God is saying, as he said to Abraham at the beginning, is, yes, you're unfaithful, but despite your unfaithfulness, I'm still about make bringing you into this mission making you a blessing to the nations i'm still about the ends of the earth i'm still about calling you to make this happen the mission is still on but again at this point you'd be thinking well, how how on earth can this happen the key thing is not just political powers the key thing rests deep in the heart of the people of israel we've you see it as you read the old testament it's in their hearts the they're rebellious. They keep striking against God and it's caused them to pull in a very different direction to God and consistently go our own way. It wasn't just one blunder that Adam and Eve made at the beginning. It's deep set into the default position of humans. So how on earth are we ever going to faithfully complete this job? Well, a few hundred years later, the problem gets solved. Anyone? We got it. That's a hundred percent. For Dave, I think I've heard Dave, with everyone, correct? Caroline's whispering in his ear, you can tell. There we go, a few hundred years later, Jesus arrives on the scene and everything now comes together. Through Jesus' life, death and resurrection, he found a way to decisively address our problem. By dying in our place, what did Jesus do? What Jesus did by dying in our place was he offered us forgiveness for the gross misconduct that got us sacked in the first place. By dying on the cross, it also talks about how Jesus defeated the enemy, defeated the devil. What does that mean? Well, One of the things that means was that essentially he bought us out of the contract that we had foolishly signed with a rival and particularly horrible boss. That's what he did on the cross. As he rose again from the dead, what he found a way to do was to give us a completely new heart, that we could be raised as Christ was raised, to give us a new attitude. So among many other things, we would be far more productive and happy workers. That's what he did for us. God had made it clear all the way from the time of Abraham that he wanted us back on board with the mission despite our sin, but it was Jesus who got our jobs back. Thank you, Jesus. I praise him for that. It's a wonderful, wonderful privilege. And so once Jesus had died and risen again, he made this really clear and he gathered his followers all together and he told them the news. He said, guys, we're back on. You got your jobs back. Well, he actually said this, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen to 20. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's underlining, being back in the family is just the start of the blessings I brought you. I just want you to think about this, where you put that. Being back in the family, adoption is the start of the blessings. Why? Because there's another thing to come. Think of the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son, he goes away. and He, he, he comes back to the father thinking, I'm never going to be accepted. The father hugs him. He says, no, you can come back as my son. I want you back in the family. Let's have a party. So they kill the fattened calf, whatever that may be. And they party all night long. And uh, I wonder what happens the next day. Have you ever asked that question? It's a, it's a story. <laughs> Jesus made clear it's a fictional story, so there is no next day for characters who don't actually exist. But anyway, I wonder if you thought, if he continued the story, what would happen? I don't know, but I wonder if the next day would have gone something like this, or then a couple of days later, right, you're back in the family, son, so now let's do what we, we should be doing. You're back in the family business. Come on, let's go. Really? son was concerned he'd come back as a slave, not a son. No, it, it, it's not as a slave, but working shoulder to shoulder with his father in the most dignified work that he can imagine. He's back in the family business. Now, with all this said, you could say, it sounds great, but still, even forgiven and with a new heart, still getting involved in all this mission we talked about sounds like a tall order, how, what resources will we be given to complete the mission? Are we at really left on our own now? Well, the answer to that clearly is no. And Jesus says this to his disciples very soon after Matthew 28, 18-20. In Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus outlines the resources uh, for the job. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. There we go. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, this guy, the Holy Spirit, hasn't featured in our story in the way I've told it yet, but he's all over this story. And uh, Jesus had also mentioned the Holy Spirit to his disciples. Jesus had been really clear to them. He said, look, guys, I'm going one day. And they'd all be, no, don't go. But he's like, no, no, no. I'm, when I go, I'm not going to go. <laughs> kind of like, like he said in Matthew 28, I will be with you forever. See you later. It's a strange dynamic. But he's like, no, I'm going to go, but I'm not going to go. And what I mean is that there's another one like me who's coming. A counsellor, a comforter, those are words Jesus used, and he's called the Holy Spirit. And I think they still would have moaned a bit, as I think we all would. Oh, but come on, Jesus, can't you just stick around for longer? And then he says this in John's Gospel, amazing verse. Okay? Remember, all the Bible is God-breathed, we believe. And this verse is also, he said, it is better for you <laughs> that I go. Just imagine Jesus is here in the West. We go, we have got a secondment to the West for a while, starting a new church and all that. Jesus is going to be here for a term or so. And at the end of that term, you go, please stay. guys." no, no, it's better that I go. I don't know. I, I would have struggled to believe that one, to be honest. But he said it seriously, straight face. It's better that I go because if I don't go, he is not going to be able to come. What's he saying? The Holy Spirit is pretty good. That's what He's saying, I hope, as Christians here, we've got a flavor of what he meant by that sort of thing. The Holy Spirit's amazing. The Holy Spirit helps us in every area of our life. He, he gives us guidance. He helps us hear God's voice. He sometimes brings a tangible sense of the presence of God to us. When we feel like we're not worthy, that we're distant from God, it says that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children if we're children, then we're heirs. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. He gives us that spirit of adoption. He gives us gifts to share with other people in the church community. He develops fruit in us so that we can be more self-controlled, more gentle, more, uh, more joyful, all those sort of things. It's amazing stuff. But I want to be clear, as amazing as all those things I've just mentioned are, those things are all secondary benefits of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you realize that. None of those things I've just mentioned, guidance, a sense of adoption, fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, none of them are the primary reason the Spirit was given, although they might overlap with it. No, who's the Holy Spirit? He's the main resource to get the job done. He's sent in the context of the whole job and the whole mission. Now that we're forgiven and reconciled and redeemed and restored and re-employed through Jesus, we still can't do the job on our own. Remember back to Abraham and Moses. God had to intervene miraculously. Well for us, same situation is the case, but we've got new resources. We get the Spirit of God living inside us, available to us at all times to resource us for the job that God has given us. And I'll be clear, our situation we have now is not perfect. It's still a broken world and we're still broken, and that will be the case until Jesus returns. But I also think we should notice that our situation today is not a million miles away from where God intended things to be. Think back to Adam pruning his hedge. I'm not a gardener, guys. I'm sorry about this. Uh, Putting some seeds in the ground, weeding, whatever it is. He's doing that in a context where it says in Genesis 3, the Lord God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Can you get the, the scene? He's working in the presence of God. That's the picture in the garden. For us too, we get to pick up the job in different ways, bringing blessing, introducing people to the good news, loving and serving others. But we do it in the presence of God too. In fact, the presence of God now is that our bodies are temples of the spirit. His spirit is right there with us in our hearts, in our bodies. We're co-laboring with God as we were made to do. That's what we are today, but not quite today. Because we need one more thing here before we finish. Let us put this right up to today. You won't be able to guess this one because you know where you are. 2020 in West Birmingham. There we are with a nice blue sky. I'll, I'll have you have you know. <laughs> so questions we close. How then do we play our part in this story? Well, a few uh, years ago, some of this room might be uh, might have been there. Actually, I think they I, I think they were. Um, the leaders of the church all got together and we asked this question, how can we get involved in this story? And we came up with three ways we could play our part in the mission. Uh, do you reckon you can just stick the next side on it, guys? I think it's the next one. There we go, I'm sure you've seen them before most of you. We said as a church, what we want to do is make Jesus the most talked about person in Birmingham, be for the good of our city and impact nations. And that was the case when we were one church with three sites and it's still the case for Church Central uh, churches. And just to be clear, these three things did not arrive on tablets made of stone that came down a mountain. This wasn't God's direct word to us. Uh, We did our best, I'm sure they could be worded better. But this was our attempt to try to help everyone in the church understand how tangibly we can step into this story here and play our part in God's mission, the job he's got for us to do. And as I just close, I just want to tie things up by just showing how these three things fit then into the bigger story. I'm going to take them one at a time. Let's, let's do it like this. The first one, to make Jesus the most talked about person in Birmingham. In this whole story, I've got little chapters, but that's where it sits, really. That, without that chair, the fifth chair, nothing happens here. He's the only way to get us back into God's family. He's the only way to redeem us, to restore us, to reconcile us, to forgive us. Without Jesus, nobody gets into the family, nobody gets our jobs back. So in all that we do, and all that we say, and how we live, and where we live, and who we hang out with, and how we go about our jobs and how we go about our time looking for work when that's the time we're living in, and how we raise our kids, and how we use our singleness, and how we treat our spouses, and how we use our retirement, how we use our artistic gifts, how we use the uh, positions of influence God's given us in the community, how we go on holiday, how we rest. Everything that we do, we look to do so in such a way as to make people respect and honour Jesus more and ultimately, to, hopefully, to, that they'd come back to God the Father through him and join us on the mission to make Jesus the most talked about person in Birmingham. We also want to do good for Birmingham, and the reason for this is we want to take seriously the call that God has given us since the very beginning of Genesis to bring life and order to the chaos, to bless, to do people good. And I'll be, be frank with this, as far as I'm aware, The most profound way that we can do anyone good is to lead them to Jesus. That would be where I sit on the the best, the the, the kind of sharp point of our blessing. But I know I've done this before, and I see lots of Christians do this. It becomes like an either-or, like an all-or-nothing thing here for for, for many people. Of like, It's all there, so anything else doesn't matter. I think sometimes we just need to step back and see the headline of blessing and not miss the wood from the trees here. We, you individually and as a church, are called to bless. You're called to bring life. You're called to increase joy. You're called to serve and to encourage and to praise. You're called to reduce suffering and bring dignity to those who don't have it. You're called to treat our planet in such a way that our children's 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 children can still find it a blessing to them. We're here to do people good. And uh, the people who are closest to us are Brummies, as far as I can gather. So shall we start with them? That's where I'm at with this one. Black country not included. Them them too. I mean, are included. Different category. I don't want to get these things wrong. Brummies and black countryites. Is there a word for that? Yam yams, isn't it? (laughs) Brummies and yam yams. We want to do them good and do good for Birmingham. And the black country and greater Birmingham too. So we got to two. And I remember, actually, on the day, I remember we were in an office in a uh, jewellery quarter and we got to number two and I was at that point in the meeting I don't know if you get to meetings this way I was like brilliant done let's pack the bags <laughs> put the pencil case away here we go computer back in the bag let's go and I looked around the room and I realised that we hadn't finished and others were like right and for number three and I, I literally said to say like, guys let's just hold on for a second Birmingham's quite big okay Birmingham, million people. Greater Birmingham, two million people. Uh, this is going to take us a while, and it's going to be a reasonably large amount of effort. I have a uh, faith, I think, for that kind of thing, but we can't go further, surely? And everyone else is like, yes, we can. Let's go to three. Let's also, while we're at it, impact nations, shall we? And uh, they were completely right. Um, I, I'm fully on board with this. But I'll be honest, whenever I see that number three, I feel it's incredibly daunting. And what the first thought that goes into my head is, how on earth can we, as a medium-sized church, uh, now three smaller churches, in a small, uh, sorry, not small, in the second city of a medium-sized country, how can we think that we can make a difference to the nations of the world? If you ever think of that, I'm with you. But I've learned that then another thought pops in straight after And it's the verse that I gave you ages ago, Isaiah 49, verse 6. I hear God's voice then saying this, it's too small a thing, Johnny. It's too small a thing. The mission he wraps us up in has always been wildly far-reaching. Fill the earth. Fill the earth and subdue it. All the families of the earth will be blessed by you. Go make disciples of all nations in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's been the story all along. That's our job. That's our mission. That's our God. And like I said at the start, well, some people in the church may work more on one of these areas than others may be. This stuff's for all of us. The mission is who we are. In a sense, to be part of a church, central church, is to sign up for that mission. As I've sought to show It's even bigger than that. It's who we are as followers of Jesus. To be a Christian is to sign up to God's mission. And actually it's even bigger than that. It's who we were made to be as humans. To be a human flourishing as our Creator intended, it means signing up for God's mission. So my call to you as we finish is what about you? Where do you fit in all this? The Creator of all things, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has graciously called every one of us to join him in his work. He wants to work shoulder to shoulder with you. You are not called to be a passive recipient of his blessing. Where's the dignity in that? But he trusts you to join the family business, to get your hands dirty, bringing blessing to your community, to your city, and to the ends of the earth. I want to ask are you in?